0: As we uh, move forward in, our, uh, in the wilderness series in the book of Numbers, we're not actually moving forward. We're staying in the same spot as we have been. And I would invite you to open your Bibles to Numbers 14 once again. Today, uh, as we encounter what's going on in the book of Numbers we want to focus specifically in on on this idea of prayer. So, as we do so, we'll begin. Excuse me. Um, we'll begin with verse thirteen. Just for context, let me back up to verse eleven. The Lord said to Moses, "How long will these people treat me with contempt?" How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I've performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They've already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people and that you, O Lord have been seen face to face that your cloud stays over them that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time the nations who have heard this report about you will say the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath so he slaughtered them in the desert. Now May the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them, as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it but because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land. I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Father, open our eyes to your word. Open our hearts. Father, change our wills that as we see and receive what you have for us, that we would surrender, that we would stop resisting and testing, that we would stop seeking our way, seeking our glory, that we would submit to you as Lord and you alone. Father, make your word live to us. And through your word, help us to bring life to others. For your name's sake. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So as we're uh, working through this today, we're going to be focusing in on Moses' prayer in chapter 14 here. Uh, Moses here prays for God's mercy toward Israel. But just a few chapters ago, Uh, Moses is so sick of trying to lead these people that he basically uh, says if the Lord cares anything about him at all he'll just kill him now. Get it over with so he doesn't have to face his failure because the people are stiff-necked and rebellious. Moses' prayer life feels a little bit like a roller coaster, doesn't it? Maybe you can identify. I know I can. So how do we get here this before we can move forward looking at what moses is saying we need to take a look at what is it that that has happened before this how do we get to this spot we know that god brought israel out of slavery in egypt with uh, mighty signs and wonders demonstrations of his power and his presence he spent a year at mount sinai revealing his heart and character to them in the law so that they could know him they could know his heart they could know his nature and they could be set apart holy unto him. Now he's led them right up to the promised land. They're able to see it. They could, you know, they could probably smell it from from how close they are. It's that it's right there. They're able to affirm the fact that God's promises, everything that he said is coming true. It's a rich, abundant land. He's promised it to them. He's prepared it for them. He's even told them that he will drive out the nations ahead of him ahead of them but when they scouted it out they were afraid of the people who inhabited the land so they trusted their feelings instead of their father the people have been testing god grumbling and failing to trust him pretty much from jump street the lord describes them as having tested him 10 times on this journey now he says he's going to wipe them out and start over with moses even though the people uh, have betrayed Moses and they've tried to replace Moses, that's what they're in the middle of here, tried to replace him, reject God, and reverse the Exodus, Moses still prays to God to have mercy on them. And the Lord does as Moses asks. So the principle that we see here, the the core reality that kind of holds all this together, if you forget everything else, you want to remember this: God's delight. Or I'm sorry, God delights. There's a typo here. It probably is in yours. Nope, Brad corrected it. Brad, you're a champion. God delights to answer prayer that aligns His people with His priorities. God delights to answer prayer that aligns His people with His priorities. All right, so let's take a look at the text here and and see how this uh, breaks down as we walk through it. Notice. As we begin here with Moses' prayer, what, what is it about Moses' prayer uh, that is bringing God to answer it, that's leading into this? So uh, the, the people are going to stone, in verse 10, they're going to stone Caleb and Joshua for standing up for the Lord, for warning them not to rebel against God, for encouraging them. They want to stone him. All right? They've already said that they want to get a new leader, kick Moses out. Get rid of Aaron, we're going to start over with somebody who'll take us back to the life we used to have back in, in Egypt, in the slavery and bondage that we were in. because that seems better than following God. The Lord is angry with them. And you saw in, uh, in verse 12, he says, he's going to destroy them, but he's going to make, uh, he's going to make Moses into a mighty nation. So he's going to keep his covenant. And as he keeps his covenant through, uh, to Abraham through Moses, because Moses is also a child of Abraham, he can wipe out all these people, and now Moses' name will be lifted up as the great father of the nation. Still through Abraham, nothing changes there. God has a, has a, uh, a faithfulness to his own word, but not with these folks, because they're bums, that's my paraphrase. You know, they're no good. Start over. Get new stock. Okay? They're a bunch of culls. We're going we're to cull the herd here. <clears throat> so, then we get to 13. Doesn't it seem like if you're Moses, that sounds like a pretty good deal? I mean, again, just a couple chapters ago, he's like, Lord, shoot me now. Me just, just get me out of this. I'm so tired of dealing with this. This is a bigger task than I can handle. I don't want to have to face my failure, and inevitably, I'm going to fail. The people are too stubborn and too sinful. I'm too small to be able to do what you've called me to. Now God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Wipe them out. We're going to make it bigger, better through you. And Moses says, instead of, hey, that's a great deal. I get to be the, the, the big guy. I get to be the hero He says instead, in verse 13, if you do that, Lord, then the Egyptians, where we just came from, they're going to get wind of it, and they're going to look at you as not being strong enough to deliver. You brought your people out, but you couldn't deliver your promise. And then, verse 14, when the Egyptians hear about it, they're going to tell the inhabitants of this land about it all of the Canaanites who are there encamped. But these people where we're going, they've already heard about you, O Lord, still in verse 14. They've already heard that you are with Israel, with these people, and that you've been seen face to face. Now, that's a pretty big deal. There's a personal relationship here, and you'll remember back to Numbers chapter 6 when the Lord has the priests pray that Aaronic benediction over them to stamp God's name on the people, right? It's Again, it's like Andy writing his name on the shoe of his toys. These people are mine. They are special to me. They're set apart to me. And I watch over them as the apple of my eye. These people know it. They know that you've seen, or Israel has seen you, that you go with them, that they wear your name. What's it going to do, Lord? If these people then nullify or denigrate your glory by thinking you're not strong enough to do what you set out to do, they're going to think, well, the Lord wasn't able to bring these people into the land he promised them, so he killed them in the desert, verse 16. With that logic, this whole... This whole thing hinging on Lord this is not really about mercy for the people it is but the mercy to the people is about your glory it's for the sake of your name this is why I'm asking you to do this Lord you would still be faithful to your covenant it wouldn't change who you are but Lord the people need to witness who you are and if we short circuit this now Now understand, the all-knowing God is not surprised by this. It's not like God changed his mind. We, We hear that prayer changes things, and that's true. Prayer does change things. But it doesn't change God, and it doesn't change God's mind. Prayer moves the heart of God in a way that God already intends, according to God's purpose and priorities in his sovereign will. And it is moving us and our circumstances that we don't get to understand. In case you ever thought that when you pray, this is how God gets to know what you need, think that through for just a moment. You really think that the God who created the universe and knows all things, knows every molecule that exists, doesn't know what you need. Right? Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, he, he knows what you need. right? He knows every sparrow that falls. He knows how to clothe the lilies of the field. You really think He's going to leave you hanging? No, God doesn't need your information. But He demands our transformation. And prayer changes us. And it changes circumstances. We need to recognize the power of this so with all of this understanding that this is about God's name being praised among the Gentiles then Moses transitions in verse 17 and he says now in light of that may the Lord's strength be displayed right this this is this is the goal Lord Display your strength. Show them your power. Let them know who you are. May your great name be praised. Holy is your name. But notice how he asks for his name to be displayed, how his, how his strength and his power will be shown in verse 18. May the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished he punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation before we press on we'll come back to to verse 18 and 19 just thumb back to the book of exodus okay as you move back to the left jump over leviticus go to the book of exodus find chapter 34 Moses is quoting God back to God in his prayer. Which is one of the one of the great things about praying through the scriptures. If you've been joining us in our uh, Sunday night prayer meeting, if you haven't, I want to encourage you to do that. uh, This is one of the clear calls of Scripture to God's people is to gather in prayer. But when we are praying on Sunday night, a big part of what we do is we're very often praying through the scriptures. Here's a psalm, here's a passage, and we're praying in accordance with what God has already said. In Numbers 14, Moses quotes God back to God, <clears throat> and here's where he's quoting him from, Exodus 34. God has led them out of Egypt, they're at the foot of Sinai, he's giving the law, they have uh, he's already given the Ten Commandments, and you may remember from the Charlton Heston movie, if you didn't read it in Exodus they have this thing where they decide they want to build a golden calf bad plan right they want gods like everybody else has so their form of worship since they can't see God and Moses is up on the mountain actually talking to God so they're seeing the the mountain uh, with the smoke and fire and the rumbling and all this they don't know what's going on but Moses has been up there for 40 days So they get stressed, Aaron, here, take all our gold stuff and melt it down and make an idol for us. Brilliant. So Moses comes down off the mountain and he's consumed with the zeal of the Lord. And he gets ticked and he smashes the stone tablets and and, uh, calls God's judgment upon the people. We haven't even gotten to numbers yet. We've got a lot of testing going on. So they just had this big golden calf episode. Picking up in verse 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. He's reminding him uh, you needed to control your temper a little bit. Verse uh, Verse 2. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, Yahweh. This is the, the personal name of God that he's revealed only to Israel. The Lord came down in the cloud, stood there with him, proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, see if you recognize this, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Notice Moses' reaction here in verse 8. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped, which ought to be a natural response when you are in the presence of God. Every time we see someone actually encounter God in Scripture, There's no mustering up of a reverent fear. Let's see if I can show God respect, because I should. It is absolutely face down. You know, oh my goodness, if I could say words, they probably would not be great words. I'm so overwhelmed by this. I'm a dead man, as Isaiah said. Woe to me, I'm ruined. When we see God as God is it focuses a spotlight on who we are and all of our pretense all of our religious notions all of our thoughts about being good or or trying hard or god looking at us and seeing what we deserve goes out the window when we see god as he is we recognize that we're worms we're dirt we're nothing we are rebels who deserve judgment And if you have not come to that realization, then you have not yet seen God. Until we know that we have fallen short of God's glorious standard, until we recognize that we are sinful people in the midst of a sinful people, and we are because of that sin separated from a holy God, we don't know Him yet. We don't understand who He is. Moses here in verse verses 8 and following bows down to the ground and worships. O Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. He's praying this face down. He's not praying this standing up as if he has something to offer God or if he has some argument to make. Lord, If you please, if you will, please go with us. Don't abandon us. Don't turn us over in our sin. Verse 10, then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. So I already got a covenant with Abraham. I am making a covenant with you, Moses, the Mosaic covenant. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation, in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These are all the people they're afraid of, by the way, in Numbers 13 and 14. These are the people in the land. And they said, we can't do it. They're too big. God's already said in Exodus 34, you got... More than a book before this. They've already spent a year now in, in, uh, at Sinai, receiving the law, understanding who God is. They're afraid. But all the way back in, in Exodus 34, the Lord says, Obey what I command you today. I will drive these people out before you. Verse 12, Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Back to Numbers 14. We see there God establishing a covenant with Moses and these people, reminding him of what God already knows, that he has chosen them and set them apart, and that he will go with them. Now they have failed God, but God has not failed them. They have been faithless. God has remained faithful. Their faithless choices have consequences. That's what we see throughout the book of Numbers. But God remains faithful to his covenant even when his people are faithless. So we're back in uh, 14 and we're looking at, at verses 18 and 19. Moses quotes the Lord back to the Lord. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, this is his appeal. Lord you are loving you are these things this is your character this is your nature in accordance with who you are in accordance with your great love forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now he's not acting like they've they've somehow earned it they've been good lord you know we messed up this time but we you know we've been trying really hard no not at all you've been pardoning us from the get-go from the very beginning We've been sinning and you've been forgiving, Lord, (coughs) for the sake of your name, for your testimony among the Gentiles. Forgive. It's who you are. (coughs) The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. The Lord gives in to this, it seems. I'm going for your cough drops, Heidi. I have to steal my sister's cough drops. You know, it happens just at the worst times, right? Right in the middle of the sermon. The Lord appears to give in. It's not so much that he is giving in, but he is responding to what Moses is praying according to his own pleasure and delight. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Moses gets his prayer answered. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, now God is also appealing to his own character. If this were television, they'd edit all this in post. All right. So Moses has appealed to God's character. Now God is saying, yes, let me tell you about my character. As surely as I live, as surely as my glory fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in this desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times, not one of them, will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. He's going to keep the promise, but not to those who showed him contempt. No one who has treated me with contempt contempt will ever see it. And then he points out that Caleb is different. Caleb is not without sin, but Caleb follows me wholeheartedly. Therefore, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Okay, so... when we see this picture the picture we see is that God delights to answer prayer that aligns his people with his priorities Moses has aligned his own heart with God's priorities he sees mercy as a top priority for God according to God's nature and for God's glory he sees the glory of the Lord as the ultimate priority. And therefore, God blessing his people is for his glory. Moses sees that. He's aligned his heart with that. He wants to align the people with that. And for him to do that, they have to, you know, be alive. So he's saying, Lord, your glory is what matters here, your glory is bigger. And the people need to see, if they're going to know you, if they're going to understand that you are slow to anger and abounding in love, then they need to see that these rotten, stiff-necked, bum people of, of whom I am a part can be redeemed by you, can be brought out and brought in, that you will keep them to the end. This is our prayer, isn't it, today? You see, if it's up to me to keep my salvation, if it's up to me to maintain my relationship with the Lord, I'm doomed. Brother, I can't get through the day without sin. I can't make it to breakfast half the time. If it were up to me and my faithfulness and my ability to do the right thing all the time without fail. Even to do my best, which I don't. And neither do you. If it were up to me, I would have no hope at all. So our hope as Christ followers, as children of God, is that God will keep us. That he will keep the promises that we've made that he will keep his promise to us, in us, through us, by his Holy Spirit living within us. And he says, absolutely, that's what he will do. That's why Paul in Philippians 1.6 can say that he's confident of this, that the one who started the work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's what Moses is praying for here. Lord, keep your people. Demonstrate to the Gentiles... That while we've been unfaithful, you are never unfaithful. You keep your promises. And the Lord says, that's absolutely what I will do. But at the same time, I will uphold my holy standard. You cannot show the Lord contempt and think you get a pass. Nobody gets a pass. You will either pay for your sins as you deserve or someone else will. Those are the only options. Nobody gets off. The hope for us, the joy, the thing that we put our faith in, that we hang our hat on, is that Jesus Christ has taken that. He pays the price. So either He's paid the price for me and I receive that by grace that I don't deserve, or I get the condemnation that I do deserve. There is always justice in the reality of God. Moses is saying here, Lord, demonstrate your mercy. And the Lord says, I will, and I will also demonstrate my justice. These people will not enter the land, but the people will enter the land. Their children will. I'll keep my covenant with this people, but these persons will fall. God delights to answer prayer that aligns his people with his priorities. Now in the New Testament, our Lord Jesus gave us a model prayer to teach us the right way to pray. You heard it sung earlier and you need to understand there is a right way and a wrong way to pray. I've probably been guilty a number of times of saying, well, there's no right way to pray. Well, that's not entirely true. There is a right way There is a prayer that God hears, and there is a wrong way, a prayer that God rejects. And when we come to God, we have to come on his terms. And so Jesus, in Matthew 9, gives us this example prayer. The Lord does not hear and answer every prayer, no matter what you've seen in Hallmark movies and things like that. But we can see in scripture several key characteristics of prayer that the Lord is actually delighted to answer. They're well demonstrated here in Moses. They're demonstrated here in the Lord's Prayer as well as numerous other places in the Bible including Nehemiah 9. You can check that out for your homework. It's printed for you in your program. Read Nehemiah 9. It's a little long for us to be able to go through here together today, but uh, as uh, as they are reestablishing the people in, in God's covenant and his law, the book's been discovered and they're, they're, uh, they're reading the law together. Nehemiah is praying for God to move. And two-thirds to three-quarters of the prayer is worship. It's praising him. It's about his glory and his name. And then, then he says, Lord, forgive us, guide us, be with us and we're making a covenant with you. You've made a covenant with us, now we're making a covenant with you. Matthew chapter 6, you can turn there. Most of us in the United States are familiar with the Lord's Prayer, whether we have ever actually read it in Scripture or not. We've heard it uh, in various services, at funerals, and so on. You've heard it sung from uh, any number of different people. Here's what the Lord says. You can find a, a shorter version, by the way, in uh, Luke 11. But let's take a look at, at this example prayer that Jesus gives us, and then we'll consider uh, some of the characteristics. Um, let's start with uh, verse Uh, Let's start with verse 5. I'm supposed to start with verse 9, but I wrote it so I can change it. But let's back up to 5. Jesus says to the disciples that are gathered there, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. Elsewhere, Jesus tells a parable of a Pharisee praying, a religious leader who's praying, and then a, a rotten, sinful tax collector. Nobody likes tax collectors, even that. And these two prayers are set in contrast with one another. And the, the Pharisee, the religious leader, is like, Lord, thank you that I'm not like other people, that that you've given me Uh, you know, this righteousness and and thank you for making me not like this guy over here. And the tax collectors face down, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And our Lord says, which prayer do you think God heard? Here he says, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and the street corners to be seen by men tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. When your prayer is overly conscious, I, I don't want to say conscious because we're all conscious of those around us, but if your prayers are overly conscious of who is hearing you, if you're thinking, boy, I don't know if I, if I sound the right way, if I'm saying the right words, that's exactly what Jesus is condemning here. Kill the thought that, boy, that person's a really good prayer. They, they sound really good when they pray. I wish I could pray like them. Man, that's flesh thought. It's not about the words. God does not honor your eloquence, it honors your humility. Jesus is saying, when you're praying so other people hear you, so it sounds right like you're making a speech. You've already received all the reward you're going to get. They heard you. God didn't. Figuratively speaking, God, of course, hears everything. Pressing on. But when you pray, don't do that. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. You have an audience of one. It's not for those around you. It's for the one above you. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you now he's not saying not to pray in public because we have lots of examples of that and he's about to show them this as he prays in public jesus prays with people around all the time he's setting a contrast here stop doing it for people do it for the lord if you want to know if your prayers matter for if you if your audience matters then get rid of the audience if you want to know if you're overly conscious of other, other people listening Spend time just you and God. And then take that same attitude and when you're praying with other people, which is a great edifying building up of the brethren when we pray together. That's a great thing. But I'm not praying to you. And I'm not praying so that you'll be impressed with me. I'm praying with you as brothers and sisters together talking to our Father. That's it. That's it. So take that prayer closet attitude and bring it with you into your prayer. That's what he's saying here, verse seven. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. We are so guilty of this sometimes as Christians. And uh, you know, I can tend to be like Wilbur the pig, a little loquacious at times. My wife chuckles. That's if my sons chuckle. I get amens from the family when I say this. And I'm constantly having to be reminded that God's not listening to my prayers because they're long. God's not listening to my prayers because I keep saying the same thing over and over again. If I say the right formulas, that's, that's a pagan idea. That if I have the right sort of incantation, then this God will have to act. I've heard Christians abuse prayer in that way. Well, you have to say in Jesus' name or God doesn't hear your prayer. What? Listen, if you're praying in Jesus' name, God already knows. He doesn't need your words. When Jesus said, ask what you will in my name, what he's saying is, for my sake, in my behalf. So you are praying with the delegated authority of Christ. You're praying in his name Aligned with his priorities because you're united to him and you're approaching the Father under his authority. That's a whole lot different than I have to say it this way and I have to say in Jesus' name, amen, or it doesn't count. That's a pagan philosophy, it's a pagan mentality. Dump that. And anyone who tells you otherwise, you should flee from because that is counter to the scriptures. When we pray according to patterns as if that pattern, let me be very clear about this, as if that pattern makes God answer prayers better. Or we pray through a mediator to God. That is not from the scriptures. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We don't pray to saints. The saints pray to Him. And when they're in heaven... They're worshiping Him. They don't have to have a mediator job. That's outside of Scripture. That's not from the Bible. Now, when I pray a certain pattern, I pray the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father, if that's your background, to make sure that I'm doing this duty, this sacrament the right way, so that God will answer my prayer, I am on the wrong path. That's no different than if I were to say every time I pray I need to say abracadabra so God can do his magic for me. It's the same mentality. It doesn't matter how much doctrinal explanation we put behind it. Now, here's the counter to that. That doesn't mean we can't pray those those words. It doesn't mean we can't pray a written, scripted prayer. But we need to understand how this works. We pray out of a relationship, not out of a ritual. We pray because God delights to answer prayer that aligns his people with his priorities. If we're his people, he wants to answer prayer. And he wants to answer prayer that gets us in line with where he wants us to be. So if I pray, you know, folks will pray the rosary or different types of things. If I'm doing that because this is a formula that I think is going to make God answer, then that becomes idolatry. Again, pagan mindset. If I use a tool that helps me remember what I want to pray for, that's a different thing, right? And I've known people who pray the rosary both ways. Now, there's a lot of nuance in that. I don't want to take the time on it today. But if I'm going through because I I know that if I don't use a particular pattern or if I don't do a particular thing, there are going to be things that I want to say to God and I'm going to forget. It's the same reason I have notes up here for the sermon. Because if I just start going with wherever I feel like going, it's going to be a disaster for everybody, right? We'll be here three meals into it. and We're all going to be starving and ready to fall asleep. And I'll keep going because i got a lot of stuff on my mind. Same thing happens in prayer. So there's nothing wrong with having a written prayer. There's nothing wrong with having a pattern of prayer. There's nothing wrong with using a formula that reminds you of how you want to approach God and what you want to say. But think of it in this way. Imagine it's like you and your brother and your sister are going to to mom and dad and, and here's the stuff that you want to talk about for Christmas—you got plans, you got, you know, you got a Christmas wish list that you want to have, and you want to have this kind of a party, and so on—and you don't want to forget what you want to bring up with mom and dad, and so you, you write it down. Mom and dad aren't answering your your requests because you wrote it down, or because you approach it a particular way. They delight to answer your requests when you are their children. And you come to them humbly with an attitude of gratitude, and you do things that they recognize as good. Hey, you know what? That's a good idea. Let's do that. I'd love to do that. That's great. Because mom and dad want to bless you, not because you had the right formula. All right, let's press on. I'm getting too bogged down in this. don't keep babbling like pagans or like the preacher trying to make a point too much. Verse 8, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's not saying use these words. He's saying use these principles. This is the idea. This is an example. He's not saying pray this script. He's saying this is the way you should approach it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He goes on to point out the importance of forgiveness in here in verse 14. This is this is a reflection of our attitude. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Got a whole other sermon on forgiveness that's just waiting to be preached. We'll have to hold that off for another time. All right. Having seen this example prayer, let's take a look at at these concepts, these characteristics of prayer that God delights to answer. I'm going to have to move a little more quickly because uh, I'm a little behind schedule here. So, first off, prayer that God delights to answer is rooted in relationship. It's rooted in relationship. Notice how Jesus begins. Our Father. Our Father. If you're not my Father, then it doesn't make sense for me to have this conversation. It's rooted in relationship. Moses, in his prayer, is living and praying out of his covenant relationship with God. God established that that covenant. We saw it in Exodus 34. uh, Moses knows that God is holy. But he also knows that he's slow to anger and abounding in love. And so he prays out of that relationship. I'll say this again later, but I just want to make sure we don't miss it. If you are not... In a relationship with Jesus Christ, God is not interested in your prayers. You're not his kid. he? He has no more regard for your prayers than I do for the demands of a kid walking down the street who comes up to me and says, hey, go buy me some candy. Who are you? Maybe I do, maybe I don't, but it's not because you have some right to come and ask me for stuff. Now when my children come, we have a relationship. That's a whole other dynamic. Prayer that God delights to answer is rooted in relationship. Second, notice that it's governed by God's glory. Governed by God's glory. Jesus instructs us here as we're praying. How do we do it? Our Father in heaven hallowed be thy name hallowed is revered it's the this idea that your name is holy may it be seen as holy may your name be lifted up and exalted the songs that we sang earlier holy is your name your great name we're exalting and lifting up the name of god the name is equivalent to the identity Again, in in, uh, Israel, God revealed himself to them by his personal name, Yahweh. I am that I am. They knew him by name. In our culture, we've kind of drifted away from this, but there was a time, and many of you, if you're my age or older, can remember a time when calling someone by their first name was a significant part of a relationship. You didn't just call strangers by their first name. You certainly, as a child, didn't call adults by their first name. It was Mr., Mrs., Miss. You know, If they were particularly close, I remember, uh, and I've shared this story recently, I, uh, I remember having uh, my bus driver, who was one of our neighbors and a friend of our parents, and, and uh, she said, you know, it's, it's time at this point, you know, we've known each other long enough. You don't call me Mrs. Karkowitz anymore, which is good because nobody can spell it anyway. It's, it's time for, me, for you uh, to call me Aunt Sue. Okay. Not sue, because we're not peers. That's important. It's important for us to recognize. How many of you have seen the great cinematic masterpiece McClintock with John Wayne? If you're not raising your hand, repent and go watch it, and I will pray for your souls. But there's a time in there when a young buck comes up to him, because John Wayne plays G.W. McClintock, and he's, he's the big honcho, right? He's the biggest rancher. He owns everything and all that. Guy comes up to him. He's he's getting a little, you know, a bit of that young upstart kind of thing, and and uh, <laughs> he he calls him uh, McClinic, Just calls him by his last name that way. He says, you know, it's interesting. Uh, young folks like you usually call me Mister McClennick, or my friends call me G.W. And, and he and he lets him go with it, but he points out you are breaching the relationship. You're not recognizing the right role. We've sort of egalitarianized everything in our world so that we're all peers. What's so all good. Don't ever have anybody use titles. We don't want that. We've lost something by doing that. When we come to the Lord and say our father, "How would be your name?" What we're saying is we want you to receive the honor that you're due. That your person might be exalted and revered. The attitude of Moses in his prayer is well captured in our memory verse for today, which was written centuries later by the psalmist Asaph as he struggled with the reality of exile into Babylon. It's printed for you in your program so you don't have to turn to it, but Psalm 79.9 says, Help us, God our Savior, for the glory of your name deliver us And forgive our sins for your name's sake. The agenda is governed by God's glory. Prayer that God delights to answer is rooted in relationship. It's governed by God's glory. It also pursues God's purpose. Pursues God's purpose. Notice in Jesus' words, Your kingdom come, your will be done. Which is always in the King James when I say it from memory. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What does that mean? Well, what it means is God has an agenda, and we welcome God's rule. When we speak of God's kingdom, that means God is ruling, is reigning. We recognize his sovereignty and so we submit to it. Lord, may your kingdom come. May this entire world submit to you. May everybody get on your agenda. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, meaning it's exactly what it sounds like. What you desire, what you will, may it be carried out with the same obedience as the angels in heaven, here on earth in this broken place, implicitly here among your people, but extending beyond that to the time when the nations will all bow down to God. When every knee will bow to the name of Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord. That's what that prayer is. Lord, bring your rule. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts. May your will be carried out, be obeyed, the same here as it is in heaven where there is no sin. It pursues God's purpose. Notice also, it appeals to God's attributes. Prayer that God delights to answer appeals to God's attributes. <clears throat> Moses prays according to what he knows God is like. We appeal to his righteous character, his merciful heart, his sovereign power to deliver and provide and protect. It's because of these attributes of God that God is good He's willing to, to answer our prayers, and He is great. He is able to answer our prayers. When we recognize the character of God and the, and the sovereign, omnipotent nature of God, then these things give us reason to appeal to Him. Why do we turn to God in prayer? Because we can't do it ourselves. We need someone higher. That's why everyone who prays, praised isn't it? You don't have to believe in God. You could be a pagan, but you believe in something. So we speak to the sky. You know, the the, the spirit in the sky is, is always there. And so, God, if you're listening, I'm in a bind now. And I promise I'll never do it again if you get me out of this jam. Right? Whatever formula it is, whatever, however it comes out, if it's a, a you know, a a tribe in, in the middle of a jungle, someplace, praying to some uh, sculpted god, it's the same thing. I need help with things I can't control. And so I'm going to trust that there's something bigger and higher. We know who that God is. We can appeal to him based on a relationship that knows and relies on his attributes, his character, his goodness. Moses quotes God back to him. He says, Lord, you are slow to anger and abounding in love. So for the sake of your name, Lord, may your strength be displayed in your mercy. Prayer that God delights to answer, appeals to his attributes. Next, notice that it declares total dependence. prayer that God delights to answer declares total dependence as Jesus gives us the example. Give us this day our daily bread. As God's children, we must recognize that we're his dependents. Just like my children at one point were my dependents and one of them still is. Right? God owes us nothing. And all that we have is his. Humility is the natural result of recognizing who he is and who we are. There's a great hymn by Augustus Toplady. You'll probably recognize it. I would love to read the whole thing. I will not. I'll just jump to the point. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. I can't, I can't do anything to deserve God. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone, totally dependent on God, on Christ, the rock of ages cleft for me. He goes on, simply, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, Look to thee for grace, foul. I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. This is the dependence that must characterize our prayers if we expect God to answer. And when this type of dependence is the characteristic of our prayers, God delights to answer those prayers. In our salvation or in our daily needs, we have nothing, we can do nothing, we deserve nothing. It is all by God's grace to us. Proper, effective prayer lives in that reality and declares it. It declares total dependence. Next, notice that this type of prayer is characterized by contrition. It's characterized by contrition. That means being sorry. Wanting forgiveness, turning and repenting. After asking for daily needs, Jesus instructs us to to pray, forgive us our debts or our trespasses. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Again, our memory verse captures the attitude of contrition and repentance required for those who approach the Lord in prayer. Help us, God our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. If we are praying out of a relationship that recognizes who God is in his holy perfection and who we are in our sinful unfaithfulness, humility is the natural result when we recognize our dependence on Him for our daily needs and for our salvation and our need to be saved, then the right response, attitude-wise, is to recognize, God, I got nothing. I got nothing to offer You. But if You don't save me, I am dead. I deserve the hell and condemnation that You have in store for all who are apart from You. All who do not receive Christ, I deserve that. Save me. Wash me or I die. This characteristic of a contrite heart is a really crucial element that I think we often lack. We get it for moments. Unfortunately, those moments are far too fleeting. We don't tend to be broken enough. We resist tears. We resist vulnerability. You cannot, you cannot have a contrite heart before God without being broken and vulnerable. Prayer that God delights to answer is characterized by contrition. Lastly, this kind of prayer that God delights to answer is grounded in gratitude. It's grounded in gratitude. Gratitude, a thankful heart, is implicit in every picture we have of prayer. Follow the pattern. You can't miss it. You can feel it here with Moses. You can sense it in the words and tones of Jesus. But just in case you missed it, Paul makes it explicit in Philippians chapter 4. I read it earlier, but turn with me there and we'll wrap it up. Philippians chapter 4, all the way, almost to the end of the book here. You're four fifths of the way through. Paul is writing this letter from prison and he's uh, he's chained to a Roman soldier and yet it's probably the most joy-filled letter you'll ever read. And this man who is dealing with physical ailments, constantly persecuted, ultimately will be facing execution while he is writing in shackles, says in verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Even when you're chained to a Roman guard, even when you're, you're you know, constantly being mistreated, even when people are lying about you and you're falsely accused, even, 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 rejoice in the Lord always. This is an attitude of gratitude. When we have that that attitude, then we have a different kind of gentleness in our character. See, if I'm relying on my rights and what I deserve, I can get my back up real quick. You mistreated me? Okay. Fool around, and see what goes on here. Right? We're going to we're going to take care of business. You cut me off in traffic? I'm going to shout really Unpleasant things at the windshield that you probably don't get to hear because my windows are closed, right? None of you ever do that, I'm sure. (laughs) Mistreat my child, I'm absolutely justified in how I come to you with an abusive tone. People deserve what they get, right? And so we should help them get what they deserve. If you're going to be rude, you can expect me to be rude back. It's the way it works. Jesus said, You've heard love your enemies. I mean, love your uh, neighbors and hate your enemies. Now, probably it wasn't preached that way, saying, Hey, you should go hate your enemies. But we know that's what we all have heard. Right? Stand up for yourself. You need to stand up for your rights. You need to put your foot down and not not get taken advantage of. Don't be a doormat. Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who use you spitefully. That's a whole different attitude. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that that you don't do the right thing and follow proper channels to ensure justice. It's a different thing. But our attitude, our go-to, should not be retaliation our go-to should be gentleness so if i'm rejoicing in the lord always in every situation whatever it is then it follows that he would say in verse 5 let your gentleness be evident to all the lord is near that is both a comfort and a warning if you're not going to act like jesus understand he's near and you'll answer for it also understand he's near and he can handle your situation So you can rejoice and you can be gentle and you can allow him to handle whatever vengeance needs to be meted out. It goes on in verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your your requests to God. Now, Paul's not unrealistic. He knows that we're going to have feelings. Feelings of anxiety come. You don't control that. When you have it, Paul's saying, take that anxiety and throw it on the altar. Peter later will say, cast your cares on him. Cast your anxiety on the Lord because he cares for you. The Lord is interested in what you're feeling. You don't need to be anxious. Just give it over to him. Oh, but I tried and I still feel anxious. Yes, give it some more. That's the idea of casting your cares. He's not snatching them from you. You have to cast them. You have to throw them on him. Lord, here it is. Take this burden from me. But in doing that, implicitly, I have to trust that he is God and he can handle it. If I say I'm giving that over to him, but I don't trust that he can handle it, so I keep thinking about what's going to happen, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, or how am I going to set this right, How am I going to deal with that person who didn't get their just desserts? Then I haven't cast it on him. I haven't actually presented my needs to the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Be gentle. Don't be anxious. In everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, When you come, be thankful for what God has given you. When he answers differently than you want, be thankful for what he has given you. It's about his glory, his will, not mine. In everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. When we do this, and not until we do this, verse 7, the peace of God which transcends all understanding. In other words, Your feelings aren't going to match this kind of peace. Because human understanding can't explain it. God gives you this peace as you give him your burdens. They go together. It transcends all understandings and guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Have an attitude of gratitude. Our prayers that are grounded in gratitude will reflect the priorities and character of God. God delights to answer prayer That aligns his people with his priorities. Understand this as we close. God delights to answer the prayers of his people. But no one belongs to his people by default. We aren't born children of God. Nor do we become his children by doing good things or being religious. It's by faith alone in the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Alone. If you haven't yet received Jesus Christ by faith, right now, ask God to open your eyes. Ask God to open your heart to the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can have a relationship with the Father except through Christ. And also that no one who turns to Him is ever turned away. But understand, you have to come humbly. When we approach God, we come humbly face down on your belly in the dirt. Recognize your need and turn away from your sin and cling to that rock of ages cleft for you. Let your heart cry out, wash me, Savior, or I die. And he will. And you'll become his dearly loved and fully accepted child in Christ. Everything in history has been orchestrated to bring you to the cross. Then, once you've come to him to shape you into a life that looks exactly like Christ, if you've received him, that's your destiny. You can't lose. In the end, you will look exactly like Christ. In the meantime, it's a process, there's a progressive growth and sanctification, but all of this is for God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you understanding that only your children can expect you to answer prayer. And Father, we pray that you would help us to realize more and more as your children that the prayers you answer are the prayers that are aligned with your priorities, that that get us not stuff Goodness gracious, we get so caught up sometimes in treating you like some sort of cosmic vending machine or good luck charm. Father, forgive us for this. Deliver us from it. Take that mentality out of us. Do whatever it takes to break it so that we can pray to you, help us, God our Savior, for the glory of your name, Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake, that the glory might not be to us, but to your name. We pray this in the name of the one who gave himself for us, that we might become your children. Amen.